Are you an EMDR therapist and parent who wants to make more money, have more time with your family, and get better results with your clients? Welcome to the Future Template Parent Podcast. I'm your host, Carolyn Solo, LCSW, EMDR consultant, business coach, and mom of three kids under seven. I realized that the grind of weekly sessions was taking a massive toll on my ability to be the kind of parent and therapist I wanted to be. So I dove headfirst into learning about intensives. I read all the books and articles and did all the trainings. Now I've transformed my schedule, my income, and my clinical outcomes by offering intensive EMDR in my practice. I want to teach you how to do this too, so you can build a practice you love and spend more quality time with your family. Let's create the future template for your life as a parent and as a therapist. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 10 of the Future Template Parent Podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I can't believe we're up to 10 episodes. Thank you all for listening. And for those of you for whom this is the first episode you found, welcome and thank you for listening as well. I'm Carolyn Sola, LCSW, EMDR certified therapist and consultant and mom of three daughters. Today's episode is the second of a three-episode series focusing on how the eight phases of EMDR can be adapted for the intensive EMDR model. Um, Today's episode will focus on phase three, assessment, and phase four, desensitization. I'll give you my perspective on how we can modify these phases more generally, um, however we practice EMDR, and then more specifically what phases three and four can look like when we use the intensive format. I'll also mention some of the interweaves I use the most during phase four. Lots to say, so let's get going. So in last week's episode, episode nine, we talked all about how I adapt phases one and two for use in the intensive model. So go back and listen to that if you haven't yet. Also, two episodes back, episode eight, in which I talk about the recent traumatic event protocol, RTEP, and how it informs how I structure my intensives. That episode also has a lot of good stuff about how I approach the actual clinical nuts and bolts in an intensive. So a good one to listen to as well. But today we are going to dive deep into phases three and four. Oh, phases three and four. This is where stuff gets good. Well, not really, but it's where we focus most of our attention, I think, when we think about EMDR. I'm definitely of the mind that EMDR is an entire approach to treatment. It's not an intervention. It's a modality. So I'm always doing EMDR because I'm always conceptualizing clients through the AIP model you know, whether or not the light bar is running or the buzzers are going. But I remember getting to phases three and four during basic training and being like, oh yeah, this is the meaty, sexy stuff. This is the finger waving thing. Let's go. Something I'll say up front, if you haven't already gathered this about me, is that my approach to EMDR is flexible, but I would also call it relational, attachment oriented, and tailored to the client in front of me. I am not a strict protocol adherer. And look, the protocol is incredible. Like, thank you, Francine Shapiro, for developing this groundbreaking, revolutionary healing healing modality. And now that we have this phenomenal theory and conceptual frame, we can make it our own. It took me, you know, maybe 18 months of practicing EMDR to really internalize the standard protocol. But once I did that, I could make it my own. I could practice in a way that felt in alignment with who I am as a therapist. My master's level training is psychodynamic, and I will forever and always be psychodynamic at my core. One of my friends, my therapist friends, and I have a joke. When we start talking, we're like, who's going to be the first to say, quote, the dynamic in a conversation? I just think in relational dynamics, unconscious processes, and attachment. And personally, I think EMDR lends itself beautifully to that. I mean, Francine Shapiro had psychodynamic psychoanalytic training. 
But anyway, I digress. I just want to tell you that this is how I practice, but it's not the only way to practice. I do think that once you've really, really internalized standard protocol, it's super liberating. Then you can like start to be creative and really get into like a flow state during phases three and four. And that is such a beautiful thing. That's where great clinical work happens because there's so much attunement. All right, so enough intro. Let's move into phase three assessment. So, um, you know, in the last episode when I talked about phases one and two, and in episode eight when I talked about RTEP, I talked a lot about um, how I get the targets that we end up using um, in our intensive. And usually um, I start with the first point of disturbance when I have the client do the Google search scan, which is part of the RTEP. However, if they don't want to do that, if they'd rather start with a different point, that's of course fine as well. Like I always try to give the client opportunities for choice, like a lot of choice points during um, EMDR. Usually though, I find that we start with the first one that they, you know, that they hit upon when they're doing the Google search. And however, you know, if both seem too overwhelming to approach at first, if they're just like really feeling like, you know, both of these targets are a 10, it feels scary. I might try a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of tools I have that if you, um, come with me to work on my VIP day. We'll talk all about a lot of ways that you can kind of pre-desensitize the client a little bit so that they can more easily tolerate going through the entire EMDR process. Like some of those things are the assist protocol. Um, You know, you can use EMD or you can use EMD little r. You can also use the CPOS protocol developed by Jim Knipe that stands for the constant installation of positive orientation to safety. I know that's a mouthful, but that's a great one for getting a client really prepped to move into the harder work. And of course, you can just pick a lower intensity target. And when you do any of these things, not only does it reduce the client's affect and intensity, it also gives them confidence that they can handle EMDR. So, you know, that's certainly something you can do. Also, again, in my sort of flexible style to EMDR, I don't find it necessary to ask all of the questions that are on the assessment sheet (laughs) in standard protocol. If the client seems to be well connected to the target before we reach the end of the assessment questions, like, why not? Let's just go with it, right? Like, why keep asking them questions, even though it's clear they're there, you know, and you know, you know, that feeling like their eyes are welling up, or they just seem you can tell they're in it, like, don't have to keep going, that's going to take them out of their right brain a little bit, just like, in we go, go with that. Let's turn on the light bar, let's turn on the buzzer. And part of the workbook that I provide to clients to complete prior to our first intensive day, again, Go back to the previous episode to hear more about that. That involves the client identifying their most common negative cognitions. So when we're doing the assessment, if the negative cognition feels really important, which you know I feel like it's something that a lot of people identify with because most of us have learned how to be how to be intellectualizers and very cognitive. But you know, so they've picked out their most common negative cognitions prior to our first intensive session, and so usually we're able to quickly pick one. Like they're sort of primed to choose one. I'm just going to say this. I don't often ask for a positive cognition during assessment. I don't often do the VOC, the validity of cognition during assessment, especially if the client seems very connected to the distress as we're going through the other questions. Like a positive cognition is going to naturally emerge at the end of the desensitization of a target. And this is something that Laurel Parnell talks about in her um, attachment oriented EMDR or something like that. (laughs) It's great, great book and great trainings if you're if you ever come across her. But she talks about this, like she often doesn't ask for a positive cognition. Um, She often doesn't scrupulously stick to the assessment protocol. And so that's something I kind of plucked from her and makes a lot of sense. 
And I really do find, like I said before, that a positive cognition like naturally emerges when we've desensitized the target. They believe something different and they can just really, they can go there. Um, One thing I do think that's important to do during the assessment to be able to see is if the client can connect with some body awareness. Like if they have zero somatic connection and they can't really identify a distress level like a SUDS, that is something that I think needs some attention because that's so important, the work that we're doing, right? The body keeps the score. You know, we want to make sure we can connect with the somatic symptoms. If they're struggling with like identifying a felt sense of distress, um, I'll walk them through some mindfulness exercises to help them become more connected to their body. I'm a client who is like entirely unable to connect to their bodies and like really can't express like feelings of distress. They might be very dissociative. And if you didn't catch that during intake in phase one, you might find this out here and then you know, your, your work is going to look a little bit different. You can still do an intensive with a dissociative client. It just looks very different. It's a lot of parts work and that might be the majority of what you do, but think about like what four hours of parts work could do for a person. Like, and I also believe that parts work is trauma processing because a piece of what you do in parts work is have the parts kind of talk about their fears, their burdens, and that's trauma processing. So, and there's way more to talk about that. I'll talk about that in the future at some point, but um, yeah, but this is a way Again, to kind of assess, is there dissociation going on here if they're really unable to connect to their bodies? Um, All right. And now we're on to the sexiest of the phases. I don't know why I keep saying that, but like, you know, it's the one that has all the cachet. Moving on to phase four, desensitization. Desensitization, the like, you know, light bar time follows the same procedure that it would in like a standard hourly EMDR session for me, like 45 to 60 seconds of bilateral stimulation, checking in, you know, what did you notice? What's coming up? Turn into the target when appropriate, like if you have to go back to target, and checking the sides when it seems that the memory has reduced in intensity. Just as in standard EMDR, the length of time needed to process can vary, and we may need to bring in interweaves or parts work. I mean, I believe parts work is an interweave. <laughs> and a target memory could be resolved during the first day, or it may take three days. I found that I can often get through around five-ish targets in the structure that I have for my intensive. Of course, it varies, but like I'd say that's about the average, which often comes out to most of the major points of disturbance we identified in the mental movie part of our tap, which again, go back to episode eight, if you're not sure what the heck I'm talking about. So yeah, I feel like we can often get through about five of those, which is really significant and overall reduces the client's distress significantly with respect to the um, traumatic episode. So let's talk about stuck processing. We always want to talk about this, right? So first of all, I'm a big fan of trying to trust the process. One of my consultants once told me, and I've really taken it to heart, when you're stuck, when you feel stuck, and it might not even be that the client feels stuck. So it's maybe our own anxiety. Just trust the process for one more set and one more set, and then just one more set, and maybe even one more set. (laughs) And when all else fails, go back to the target. This gets me unstuck, gets the client unstuck, gets the dyad unstuck more often than not. And it forces me to continue to sit in the discomfort I may feel about the pace of progress. And that's always a good thing, right? Like, you know, I don't want to be projecting too much of my own anxiety about the process onto the client. It's always going to be there. But the more that I can ground myself and stay mindful and just trust the process, it can be phenomenally effective. And it's really amazing to me when you see the impact of like returning to target. When I'm um, telling a client to go back to target, 
I always say, let's go back to where we started, you know, just in case something has shifted, right? The image may have shifted, the memory itself may have changed. So I'm not presuming to know, you know, it's not exactly the same necessarily, and that's fine. The client system always knows best, right? So like a more technical thing to try when things are stuck is switching the type of BLS, right? I have a light bar, I have buzzers, I have headphones for audio, and then there's some people who prefer the good old two fingers, right? <laughs> or butterfly taps or me tapping on their legs. And I have some intensive clients who will change the type of BLS that we're using if they get stuck. For some targets, it can feel better for a person's system to be more connected to me. So they might want their eyes open. They might want to be following my fingers. And I'm like physically closer to them and that might feel better. Some clients, that level of physical proximity isn't comfortable. So I'm not going to do that, right? There are some targets that might feel better for a person to keep their eyes closed for. They might feel like they can really visualize better, really feel like they're in it. Sometimes clients just feel like their eyes get tired. It's worth trying lots of different types of BLS and not just sticking with one. Um, And you can always vary the speed, the color of the lights if you're using a light bar, vary the speed on the buzzers, vary the direction of your fingers, lots of things. You never know what might help a client's nervous system move. And we don't always have to know, right? And how could we know that about everyone? Part of the art of EMDR is in knowing when to shift, to change, to adapt, okay? And sometimes switching BLS can make a shift. Like, it's, we don't have to understand why. <laughs> um, and I'm sure there's researchers who have talked about why. But we don't have to understand that, but it works sometimes and it's worth a try. I was talking a little bit earlier about, like, giving clients choice. Anything you can do to increase their sense of autonomy and their, that they have choice, like, they're allowed to direct their treatment, it's really good to offer. I mean, of course, it's ultimately up to us as the clinician to structure this, the session. But many of our clients may not ever felt that their voices mattered. Um, maybe they were never allowed to speak up and say what they want or need. Maybe their voices were actively drowned out because they were being hurt or abused. Even the littlest ways in which we can give them a sense of having their own voice, this can be so powerful. And it can like be an interweave itself. And remember, our relationship the frame, the safety, that's the ultimate interweave. And yes, you can create attachment and safety in an intensive. It doesn't need to be four months of individual sessions before you can feel like this person is safe with you. I think when a person enters the intensive, when they decide to do the intensive model, their mindset is different, right? It's not They're not thinking about a long-term relationship. So they're going to show up differently. And I think often they are more open to connecting you know, it's subconscious, but like, I think that mindset shift does happen for them when they're thinking about what this model is actually going to look like. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about interviews. Massive topic in itself, going to divide this into several episodes, but let me just list some of my go-to interweaves, excuse me, talk about a couple, a little bit, but this episode would be like five hours long (laughs) if I talked about all the interviews I use and how I use them. But a couple ones that I use frequently and that hopefully you can just take away from this episode and implement yourselves. But some of my favorite interviews overall is the conference table or bringing in a protective, nurturing, or wise resource, you know, depending on the context. A few specific questions that I tend to repeat over and over again that are pretty simple. This idea of what I call on-the-fly resourcing, also noticing and fleshing out a part of self in an IFS-informed way. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about the protector, nurturer, and wise figure. Most of you probably know about that from basic training. One thing I like to do that's maybe a little bit different is during phase two, I like to come up with figures in these categories that could be helpful in the context of the particular trauma episode we're working on. 
So for example, if a mom is feeling like a failure because her baby was born, er- was born early and maybe spent eight weeks in the NICU, I might ask her to reflect on without overthinking it, who comes to mind as a person who could tell her what she needed to hear in that moment. Maybe it was one of the nurses. Maybe it was her friend who she was talking to on the phone. I might do this during phase two, but I also might do it on the fly. Like while we're processing, when a stuck point comes up, I might ask a client who they needed with them in that moment. What does that person want to say? What do they see that person doing when they visualize that moment? What does that person say to them? Honestly, they always come up with someone (laughs) and pretty quickly, usually. And I have them notice what it feels like to have them there. Then maybe do some slow BLS to install that. And then we move back into processing. That's just one example, but it's like infinitely adaptable. And you don't even have to call them protector, nurturer, wise figure. You can just say, who do you need with you right now? It might be Dumbledore. It might be a tiger. It might be a childhood friend that they haven't seen in forever. You know, you you never know what their system is going to come up with, but the kind of on the fly resourcing kind of allows you to trust their system even more, not overthink it. It's like right now, who do you need with you? Right. So um, a little bit about the conference table, um, call it ego state. You can call it internal family systems, parts work, the internal workspace, whatever you like to call it. That's my other big go-to. I'm aware that this episode is getting long, so I'm not actually going to go into this today, but know that I will return to this topic and give it the full treatment that it deserves. Um, but this is so powerful. And I will. I also say that in the workbook, I do a little bit of upfront parts work and that I have the client kind of identify some of the roles that they play in their lives and how they feel about those roles. Some of that is more like identifying some of their more like protector parts, but anyway. Um, So that kind of primes them to think this way. And it gives me some information because I get the workbook prior to the first four hour day. It gives me some information about how we might use parts in the conference table setting. And if you work with me in um, my VIP day, you get all the like basically scripts for all these interweaves that I use and the way that I talk about them for you to use and adapt. So that's part of the package. You get that, keep them, use them how you want, pass them on to other people. I just want to share what I have gained over the years in my work and how I have adapted things in ways that suit me and hopefully gives you the freedom to be like, I'm allowed to adapt this. I'm allowed to make this my own. But about parts work, as someone who works extensively with clients with dissociation, this topic is so near and dear to my heart. And it's something that cannot be glossed over. So it needs a lot more attention at another time. So yeah, just a little brain dump about some of the things I keep in mind during phase four. Like phase four can be fun. It can be playful. It can be lyrical, creative. It can put you and the client in a flow state when you're really in it. And an intensive where you have so much time allows you to really, really drop into the processing. You're not worried about the clock. You're not worried about how long something will take. It really creates a mindful space that allows that access to the subconscious, allows us to take the time we need to get out of that prefrontal cortex and go where the trauma stuff is living in our emotional brain, in our lizard brain, whatever you want to call it. Um, We need time for that. 45, 50 minutes doesn't really allow for us to go into that place, really go there. And Francine Shapiro, initially, her model for EMUPR was 90-minute sessions always. It's just that lovely insurance doesn't think that therapy should be longer than 50 minutes once a week. But, you know, I digress. I hope that someday insurance companies can realize the value of this model and reimburse it better. 
But yeah, let's not think of phase four as scary and heavy and dark all the time. I think there can be a lot of fear about going into phase four that's like put in us with basic training, like, uh oh, your client might dissociate and you're going to do them irreparable harm. I don't think that's ever happened in all of my processing experience. You are attuned to the client. You know, you give them choice. You tell them, tell me if you need to stop. You're attuned to them. You will know if they need to stop. You know, it doesn't need to be scary. And staying away from it because we're afraid of phase four is doing our clients a real disservice. I mean, certainly it can be dark. It can be intense. Of course it is. But more often, it's beautiful. It's sort of brutal, you know, brutal and beautiful, as Glennon Doyle would say. And it's such a privilege to witness it, to be there in it with a client. So um, I hope you enjoyed this uh, second of this three-episode series focusing on um, the eight phases of EMDR and adapting it for the intensive model. Next time, we will talk about phases five through eight, sort of finishing up the eight phases and what that looks like in an intensive. And I talked a little bit during the episode about things that I offer in my coaching package. If you're interested in working with me, the coaching packages get you up and running with intensives in one day. You'll have everything you need to start after working with me for five hours. I promise you. And you'll have access to all my templates, all my scripts, all the tweaks to protocols I've made, my workbook, everything. It's part of the package. And bonus, if you're working towards certification, you can count these hours towards your consultation requirements. I also offer just like one-off consultation if you're interested in that as well. Check out my website, www.futuretemplateparent.com for more details on how to work with me. So it'll be really interesting to sort of talk about phases five through eight in the next episode. Um, And so I hope you'll listen. Thanks so much for being here. Take care, guys. Thank you for listening to the Future Template Parent Podcast. I hope you've learned something that can help you move from feeling overwhelmed to energized about your practice and your personal life. You don't have to choose one over the other. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, and please share it with another EMDR therapist who would benefit from hearing this episode. Each review helps us get the message out about how offering EMDR intensives can liberate your practice. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast listening app so you don't miss a single episode. See you next week.